If you thought there was something straightforward about the romantic comedy formula of Boy Meets Girl, think again. As You Like It will make you reassess everything you thought about romance, gender, and finding true love. As You Like It is one of Shakespeare's, I mean, most loved plays, most performed plays. And it has, frankly, a dazzling lead cast of romantic comedy greats, including the largest female role Shakespeare ever wrote in in Rosalind. Shakespeare was never so artful, ironic, quick-witted and warm-hearted as he is with the characters of Rosalind, Orlando and Celia, some of the most convincing portraits of true love he ever painted. But there's nothing sweet or frothy about it. This is a play that has some very hard-edged and sometimes quite challenging things to say about human relationships in both personal and political forms. And it's a play that sometimes provides a challenge to directors. But when they crack it, it's one that gives just epic quantities of satisfaction, both to artists and audience members. My name is Dr Will Tosh, and I'm a research fellow and lecturer at Shakespeare's Globe in London. Welcome to Shakespeare for All. Today, we're speaking with Dr. Will Tosh about As You Like It, a comedy that Shakespeare wrote around 1599. In this play, the heroine, Rosalind, is exiled from court into the Forest of Arden, where, disguised as a man named Ganymede, she flips the script of romantic convention and pursues the man she loves. No longer is a heroine cross-dressing as a boy simply a matter of plot device. It becomes a matter of theme and structure. Uh, And Shakespeare really delves into what that might mean in terms of gender, in terms of gender identity, in terms of sexuality, in terms of agency, in ways that I think audiences will find very compelling and astonishingly modern. This play emerged from a highly significant moment in Shakespeare's career. 1599 was the year the Globe Theatre opened, the first theatre belonging to Shakespeare's acting company. The modern-day Globe, where Dr Tosh works, is a reconstruction of that original theatre, where you can see Shakespeare's plays performed today in their original setting. Something about that move to the Globe in 1599 seems to have inspired Shakespeare, who wrote Henry V, Julius Caesar... Hamlet, and As You Like It, all around this time. As a range of plays goes, that's an astonishing political thriller. It's Shakespeare's greatest history play. It's his greatest tragedy. And it's one of his greatest comedies, and the one perhaps with the most compelling lead character all written within a, a year or two of, of, of one another. And we think probably written for the New Globe. So really, as you like, its place in this sort of shining couple of years makes it even more interesting in terms of thinking about Shakespeare's development as a, as a dramatist, as an artist. As You Like It builds on themes that fascinated Shakespeare throughout his career. One is the escape into the forest. Another is Warring Brothers. As You Like It opens with a young man, Orlando, who is angry with his brother, Oliver. When their father died, Oliver, the oldest son, inherited his estate. 
Oliver promised to raise Orlando like a gentleman, but has treated him like a servant instead, keeping him around to tend his animals. Orlando demands that Oliver allow him to live like a gentleman in accordance with his birth. Oliver pretends to agree, but secretly makes a plan to ruin Orlando. Orlando is competing in a wrestling match at court the next day. Oliver encourages Charles, his competitor, to wound or even to kill Orlando in the match. At court is another pair of warring brothers. The older brother, Duke Senior, was overthrown by his younger brother, Duke Frederick, and forced into exile with his followers in the Forest of Arden. His daughter, Rosalind, remains at court with Frederick's daughter, Celia, and we are told that never two ladies loved as they do. Rosalind mourns her father's banishment, but Celia promises that when her father dies, she will give everything she inherits to Rosalind out of love. At the wrestling match, Rosalind is instantly taken with Orlando, even more so when he overthrows the powerful Charles. She tells Orlando, You have wrestled well and overthrown more than your enemies. Orlando is so dumbstruck that he cannot speak until she is gone, and then he confesses that he too is overthrown. But he cannot stay at court to pursue Rosalind because he learns that Duke Frederick is plotting to harm him. Rosalind too must leave court. Duke Frederick exiles her as he exiled her father. Celia declares, I cannot live out of her company, and decides to leave with Rosalind. She suggests they seek out Rosalind's father in the forest, and, to make their travel safer, they will disguise themselves. We have that wonderful scene at the start where the two of them, I have to say, they're in peril, but they're also like hugely excited, are talking about what they're going to do, how they're going to dress to escape from from the court and Celia gets really excited that she can kind of wear a really drab dress and kind of put dirt on her face and, and pretend to be Eliana. Uh, and Rosalind says she's going to wear a cutlass on her thigh and trousers and she's going she's tall, so she'll be a boy, it'll be great, and she'll call herself Ganymede. And they dress themselves up and go into the forest where they pose as brother and sister, Ganymede and Eliana. As Eliana and Ganymede, the two women set off for the Forest of Arden, along with Touchstone, the court fool. Now go we in content, declares Celia, to liberty and not to banishment. In the forest, Duke Senior is finding life in exile more sweet than life at the envious court. In the forest, he finds all kinds of wise and useful lessons about life, discovering, he says... Tongues in trees, books in the running brooks, sermons in stones, and good in everything. Not all of his attendants are so happy with the new life, however. One, Jaquies, says they have become tyrants like Duke Frederick by coming to the forest and killing innocent deer for food. Back at the court, Duke Frederick is outraged that Celia has escaped. He hears a rumour that the women may have run away with Orlando. The Duke demands that Oliver bring him Orlando and seizes Oliver's lands until he does. In fact, Orlando has fled for the forest, but not with Rosalind and Celia. Back at home, he learned from his servant Adam that Oliver was planning to murder him and so decided to run away. 
Adam, who is as faithful a friend as Celia, pleaded to go with him, and the two set off for Arden together. Hungry and exhausted, Touchstone, Celia and Rosalind trekked through Arden and paused to listen in on a conversation between two shepherds, Corin and Silvius. After listening to Silvius pining with love for the cold-hearted shepherdess Phoebe, Rosalind approaches Corin about a more practical matter, food. Corin is kind, but says he does not have much to offer. He tends his flock for his master, who pays him very little. The play moves back and forth between representing Arden as a literary space for love and fantasy and escape, and representing it as an ordinary forest full of ordinary physical hardship. Corin complains about his lot as a tied farmer, someone who doesn't own the land he works on, he doesn't own the sheep he shepherds. And he complains about, you know, the, the miserliness of, of his master. This is a significant issue in, in the countryside in, in Shakespeare's time to do with sort of landlord rights and tenancy and the, the suffering of the rural poor. And it's not ignored in, in Shakespeare's play. But then Rosalind offers to buy the flock from Corin's master and offers Corin better wages. And so she and Celia, still disguised as Ganymede and Aliana, begin their life as shepherds. Orlando and Adam are also facing the harsh physical realities of Arden. When Adam starts to faint from hunger, Orlando goes to look for food. Meanwhile, Duke Senior's men are preparing a banquet and, at the request of Jaques, are singing. Jaques hopes the singing will make him melancholy. Melancholy for Elizabethans was a particular sort of sadness associated with profound qualities of thought, or at least with people who liked to think they were profound. Melancholy is fascinating. It's one of, you know, the most characteristic states of the Elizabethan mind. Uh, it's regarded as important and, and, and productive in, in thinkers and artists, but also melancholy is dangerous if it's allowed free reign. It, it is a disorder. Melancholics were definitely regarded as uh, uh, as introspective, thoughtful, sad, uh, and, and, and cynical. Very Jaques. Um, he is absolutely a, a sort of stereotypical melancholic. But I think the key thing about Jaques's melancholy is that it's as much a pose as it is a real condition. Orlando suddenly bursts into the Duke's camp, sword drawn. He threatens to kill them all unless they give him food. But when the Duke responds courteously, Orlando apologises and pleads eloquently for help. The Duke invites Orlando and Adam to join them at their feast. Orlando now goes from experiencing Arden as a harsh physical world to a charmed literary world. He runs through the forest hanging up poems that declare his love for Rosalind. Touchstone is quick to make fun of the cliched poetry. But when Rosalind learns that Orlando wrote the poems, she is so excited she can hardly control her words. Talking is the major pastime in Arden. Many of the scenes in the forest are structured around conversations. Touchstone engages in a comic debate with Corin over the benefits of court and country life. Orlando debates with Jaques about the value of love. 
You have a play which in many ways is, is made up of slightly contrived exchanges between people that nonetheless speak very resonantly to, to human experience. Rosalind's experience of love and of coming to know Orlando takes place through talking. Still posing as Ganymede, she strikes up a conversation with Orlando, who confesses that he is in love with a woman named Rosalind. Ganymede says love is a form of madness and that he will cure Orlando of it. Orlando must pretend that he, Ganymede, is Rosalind and come every day to woo him. And Ganymede, pretending to be Rosalind, will drive him out of his love. Orlando agrees to play along, and so they set in motion one of the greatest games Shakespeare ever plays with gender and identity. To appreciate how complicated this game is, we need to remember that all female roles in Shakespeare's plays were originally played by men. We have this beguiling, head-spinning kind of notion that of that it's a, a, a young male actor, an adolescent boy actor, who would have taken the female roles in Shakespeare's plays. This is a young male actor playing an elite young woman, playing a boy, and then, and as you like, it gets even more complicated because the boy Ganymede then pretends to be Rosalind in order to woo Orlando. So we have the boy actor playing the girl Rosalind who plays the boy Ganymede who plays the girl Rosalind. It becomes very hard to unpick those layers. Orlando is late for his first round of the wooing game, causing Rosalind much distress. In a tense conversation with Celia, Rosalind swings between hope and despair over whether Orlando is truly in love. Celia may also be feeling some distress as she senses that Orlando is displacing her in Rosalind's heart. Their conversation is interrupted by Silvius and Phoebe. Rosalind, as Ganymede, demands to know why the proud Phoebe rejects Silvius's love, saying, I must tell you friendly in your ear, sell when you can. You are not for all markets. But Phoebe now sees someone she finds much more attractive than Silvius, the pretty youth, Ganymede. Orlando finally arrives for the wooing game. He declares poetically that he would die without Rosalind. Ganymede responds with a touch more realism, saying, Men have died from time to time and worms have eaten them, but not for love. But when Orlando asks the pretend Rosalind to love him, the real Rosalind cannot resist. In her double-layered disguise, she offers her love and, in a further break with Celia, she has a pretend marriage ceremony with Orlando and asks Celia to carry it out. And as Rosalind gets closer and closer to marrying Orlando, Celia is sidelined and, and, and there's that really rather heartbreaking moment where, um, um, where, where Rosalind kind of affects a kind of marriage with Orlando and ropes in Celia to say, you have to be the, you have to, you have to marry us and be the witness. And she's so shocked. Celia is so shocked. This pretend marriage is followed by another debate about love before Orlando departs. 
Silvius then arrives with a letter from Phoebe declaring her passion for Ganymede, which grieves the faithful Silvius. Then a stranger arrives with news about Orlando. He came upon his brother Oliver sleeping in the forest, where he had fled after Duke Frederick seized his lands. A hungry lioness was about to attack Oliver, but Orlando, overcoming his anger against his brother, fought off the lion and saved him. The stranger now reveals that he is in fact Oliver. He has had a conversion or change of heart and now loves his brother. He and Celia also start falling in love with each other. In fact, they make plans to marry the next day. Orlando is now painfully conscious that he doesn't have his beloved. He tells Ganymede that he is done with pretending that Ganymede is Rosalind. I can live no longer by thinking, he says. Ganymede promises Orlando that he too will be married tomorrow to Rosalind. When Phoebe enters clamouring for Ganymede and Silvius enters pining for Phoebe, Ganymede promises to satisfy everyone tomorrow if they will follow his instructions. The final scene brings all the characters together at Duke Senior's camp. Ganymede gives the lovers their instructions. Orlando is to marry Rosalind. Phoebe must marry either Ganymede or Silvius. And Silvius must marry Phoebe if she chooses him. Ganymede exits, reappears as Rosalind and bestows herself on Orlando. Phoebe perceiving that Ganymede is no longer available, agrees to marry Silvius. With Touchstone paired with a shepherdess named Audrey, there are now four couples preparing to celebrate their marriages. Then they receive some good news. Just as Oliver had a conversion in his feelings towards his brother, Duke Frederick has also been converted by an old religious man he met in the forest and has now restored his crown and lands to Duke Senior. So I think for many audience members that that central relationship between Rosalind and Orlando is uh, it's very, it's very dazzling. But there are loads of marriages and as you like it. There is not exactly a marriage with the Duke and the Hermit, the bad Duke and the Hermit, but a sort of spiritual reformation that, you know, so all sorts of ways in which um, uh, individuals are reformed and, 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 and joined in, in, in various kind of new unions. Duke Senior is joyful and promises to share the good of our returned fortune with all his followers when they go back to court. Jaques announces that he will remain in the forest to speak with the converted duke and leaves the wedding declaring, I am for other than for dancing measures. But the others follow Duke Senior's lead, who urges the festivities to proceed. The play ends with an epilogue spoken by Rosalind. She notes that it's unusual to give the epilogue to a female character. But the epilogue unsettles whether we should call her a female character at all. Like the play itself, the epilogue raises all kinds of questions about gender and identity. What does it mean to be a part of society? What does it mean to be a man or a woman? What do those categories mean? How can we flex them or make them do different work that perhaps we 
have been led to believe that they can do. As You Like It is Shakespeare's exploration of his culture's sex and gender system. And if his innovative take on male and female isn't the same as ours, it shows that these categories have always been up for debate. 